You're listening to the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, recorded July 8th, 2020. Thinning the Herd, culling your tabletop game collection, plus two reviews, Codenames Duet and Lost City Rivals, as well as some Bellhop's Tabletop. Hello, and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, episode 98, Thinning the Herd, culling your tabletop game collection. I'm Sean, and now live from Windsor, the Tabletop Bellhop himself, Moti. I am the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, your RPG maitre d', answering your gaming and game night questions, striving to make everyone's gaming experience better. Let me put my years of game playing, event organizing, and game night hosting to use for you. I'd like to welcome everyone in the lobby here on Twitch. You too can join us Wednesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern at twitch.tv slash tabletopbellhop. All right, today we've got a question about, actually two questions, related questions, about thinning down your game collection and deciding which games to get rid of. In addition, I've got two game reviews today, two detailed reviews. Uh, This is in an effort to tackle some of my pile of obligation. Uh, First, we're going to be talking about Codenames Duet, followed by Lost Cities Rivals. And in our Bellhops Tabletop segment, I've got a little bit more about Lost Cities Rivals, uh, mainly about a rather big surprise with a with a recent play and a four-player game of bastille from queen games we love interacting with our listeners and viewers each week we're going to highlight some of our interaction with you fine folk we'll share some feedback we've received comments on our content and maybe some gaming discussions we've been part of in the week previous we want to share what people are saying both positive and negative we appreciate your comments and suggestions, and if you'd like to let us know something about the show, send your feedback to mo at tabletopbellhop.com and or sean at tabletopbellhop.com. That's S-E-A-N. Uh, you can also hit us up on social media. I can be found everywhere as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. And I can be found as Dark Elf LX. Up first, a comment from one of the designers of Supercats. Nice. So during my review, I noted a theory about this game, right? It, it, my theory was that just based on the number of designers, like five really big name designers on this box, that it had to be a con. And it was probably after hours when the designers are sitting down, probably with some adult beverages and someone came up to them or one of them was like, hey, I bet you we can't make we can make a better version of rock, paper, scissors. Well, Theo Riviere at Theo underscore Sasha on Twitter commented to say, Almost. It was during a trip, all five of us together, and we started with the theme. Something like, hey, let's make a game about Power Ranger cats. Oh, that makes perfect sense, right? Because during the review, you looked it up and saw that the original name was Sentai Cats instead of Super Cats. I gotta say, that's awesome. Thank you, Theo, for for jumping in. It's great to hear. And thank you for giving us some of the history behind Super Cats. All right, well, up next... Kevin Renault, longtime fan of the show, calls us out on an omission from our Games from Canadian Designers topic last week. Right. Kevin writes, Ryan Eiler and Wonderment Games. Wow. Like, I, I felt so bad as soon as I saw this tweet. Uh, thanks, Kevin, otherwise known as Tech for uh, fans of our lobby, people who like to hang out in the lobby during our show. Uh, I can't believe I totally forgot this because it was Ryan's game, Quad Heroes, that actually gave me the idea for the topic. Like, I've been playing Quad Heroes a ton with my girls lately. It's currently my oldest favorite game. And that's actually what made me think, hey, I wonder what other games I have from Canadian designers. I bet you we could do a whole show on Canadian games. The problem is, when I actually sat down and did the research for the show, Ryan just slipped my mind. Plus, there's a whole bunch of great Canadian game designer web posts and blogs and lists out there that don't have Ryan on it. Or else I would have seen him and been like, oh yeah, Ryan, of course. So now... 
what I did do to make up for this, because I do feel bad, because I do really dig Ryan's game, is I did make sure to put Quad Heroes in the blog version of that topic. While I can't travel through time to get it into the podcast, it is now in the blog post, and it is there right at the top. Uh, right on top of Eric Lang, actually. So I put you above Eric, Ryan, so I hope that makes it up to you. Sorry about that. You totally deserve to be on the list, and we should have called caught you last week. Well, Eric Paquette at Eric M. Pack on Twitter also had a comment about that comment. He got, he he commented to say, of note, Phil Menard designed and wrote for Sentinel Comics RPG. Okay, that's cool, because we did mention Phil, but we were talking about Philippe, I, I forget his full name, it's Philippe Antoine Menard, I think is his full name, is how, how we called it out. I notice on Twitter he's just Phil Menard, so he must be cool with Phil. Uh, we did call him out as for his work on Marvel Heroic Roleplaying. Now, I will admit, yeah, I didn't know Phil worked on Sentinel Comics, but it makes a lot of sense, because having played Sentinel Comics, you can tell that it's an evolution of Marvel Heroic. There's definitely some mechanics of the same. Now, I will say, though, even if I had known that Phil worked on Sentinel Comics, I probably still would have stuck with Marvel Heroic in the podcast and on the blog, just because I don't own Sentinel Comics. Now, I have played it a few times now at cons. Uh, interestingly enough, once under Eric Paquette as the GM at, um, I think that was at Breakout Con. Yeah, at Breakout Con. And I do dig the system, but due to not having a group to play it with, I haven't bothered picking it up. It's literally one of the RPGs, like I have, I have a a hierarchy of RPGs that once I get a group together, I'm going to play. And on that list, like Dungeon Crawl Classics is on there. Edge of the Empire is on there. Well, if I get through the ones I already own, I really want to play Sentinels Comics, but there's some other ones I want to get through first. But what I will do is, um, as usual, we'll toss links to both Sentinel Comics and Quad Heroes in the show notes for anyone else interested in checking out these great Canadian games. Well, finally, a comment on YouTube on one of our Gloomhaven Random Dungeon actual plays. Rage Badger Gaming writes, You hardly see anyone try out Random Dungeons. Thanks for showing it off. Well, you're most welcome, Rage Badger Gaming. I dig the name. It ends up the Random Dungeon actual plays are actually some of our more popular YouTube content. Uh, specifically, like overall and just for Gloomhaven. I think it's cool that people are enjoying them. I gotta admit, we weren't sure. Like, it was one of those, we were live streaming on fr Fridays at the time. And we're like, well, I, I don't want to break our stream schedule. I want to I want to stream something, so why not try a random dungeon? So I think it's really cool that our people are, are appreciating it. And I did go check out Rage Badger, and they also live streamed Gloomhaven. Though I didn't see any random dungeons there. So maybe it's something they might want to consider. All right, well, that's it for this week's comments. And thank you to everyone who shares, comments, and interacts with our content. A few quick announcements before we continue. We keep growing with the support of fans like you, so if you're on a social media site, we're probably there too, but if not, let us know and we'll rush right over. Running to the next social media big... What is the next social media? I, I, I've been told don't use TikTok. Everyone's like, go to TikTok, that's the next big thing. Now everyone's a, telling me it's evil, don't use TikTok. There's a million of them. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever's next, let us know. I'll make an account. If nothing else, I'll just make an account so no one steals our name, because I like our name and I don't want people to steal it. Uh, sign up to receive Tabletop Bellhop Weekly in your inbox. Once a week, I send out an email recapping all the content we released the week previous. Blog posts, new podcast episodes, reviews, anything else we create. Thankfully, Mailer Lite seems to have fixed all of their problems and everything went out fine today. But you can sign up by going to TabletopBellhop.com and subscribe right there in the sidebar. Uh, you can also go to newsletter.tabletopbellhop.com to sign up. 
All right, I am really happy to announce that in the last week, for some reason, I don't know if it's I've been busy or it just happened to see the right posts or got involved, uh, I have made some contacts with some new publishers for us to work with, and I've got some review material coming in from a number of new sources, which I'm really excited to check out. Now, some of these companies include Ion Game Development, uh, which is part of Sierra Madre Games, so look forward to some heavy games, uh, or heavy game, we'll see what they're sending, We haven't we haven't finalized it yet. Uh, they are the publisher of like High Frontier and all the Pax Port Furiana, Pax Emancipation, Bios Origins, big, heavy, the kind of stuff that you hear about on uh, heavy cardboard all the time. Uh, then Half Monster Games got a hold of me on Instagram. They do a bunch of different card games. I've got something coming from them. I got a hold of Thunderwork Games, uh, mainly trying to beg them to send me a copy of Rollmaster or Roleplayer Adventures. Uh, it doesn't look like that's coming, but I do plan on working with them in the future. And I've got a new Meeple-based game called Breakdancing Meeples coming from Atlas Games. As usual, when these new games come in, you can expect the same thing you've come to expect from us. A live unboxing video, talking about our gameplays here and on social media, a formal review in the game room and on the blog, as well as on-demand versions of all that video content. Now, due to these new contacts and the resulting number of games that are slowly filling up the pile of obligation, uh, we're going to start trying to review two games a week instead of just one. So two detailed reviews during each podcast. And we're going to start that today. In order to give me more time to edit the Bellhops two tables, uh, Bellhops tabletop segments per week, we're also updating our YouTube release schedule. And I stink at notes. That should be two game room segments per week. Yeah. All right. So Mondays, this hasn't changed. We're going to put out our, uh, a, an unboxing video. And the way it looks, it looks like we're still just going to put out one a week because we got a bunch that are already up that we haven't actually reviewed the games yet. So I think we're good. We're going to be sticking with one unboxing a week for now. Uh, Tuesday, our full podcast episode comes out 2 a.m. Tuesday, as it always has. That's not going to change. Uh, Wednesday, we got nothing because we got this show that happens live every night on Twitch. So we want everyone's focus to be here on Wednesday nights. Uh, Thursday will still be our actual plays. Note that's if we have one, because right now, due to the pandemic, we haven't been playing anything that we've been recording or streaming. But that will still be on Tuesdays once things get back to normal. Friday will be the first game review. So that'll be the first game room segment. Saturday will be our Ask the Bellhop segment. Now, that's a switch. We used to put that out on Sundays. That's going to move to Saturdays. And that's our main topic every week. And that'll be like a YouTube snippet of just our main topic. And then Sunday will be the second game review, if we have one. We start Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. here on Twitch. And we love people who drop in and take part in our chat room, The Lobby. If you're here live, remember to stick around as we continue the show after the double bell with more chat and some content otherwise only our patrons get. Yeah, that's an important one. A lot of people, as soon as we hit this, I notice this every day on, every time we record on Twitch, we get to the end of the show and I get it. We're all saying goodnight and goodbye and everyone takes off. And I'm like, no, no, stick around. We often have some really interesting discussions at the end of the show. And if not, we just read a magazine. Yeah, we were doing it for a while. I was flipping through like 1980s White Dwarves. I don't know. We could go back to doing that. <laughs> we don't get it. This is something I would love. I would love more feedback. Like if we're doing something you like, if there's a particular aspect of the show or after show or coffee break or some topic that we cover, you want to hear more of, please let us know. So what do we got what? going on in the cho in the lobby, the chobby? I don't know what else. In the, uh, in the chat room, well, we, we had a lot of pre-show coffee talk and... Yeah. Uh, 
Then we've got Ryan really interested to hear your thoughts on High Frontier and Pax Transhumanity. All right. I don't think those are coming. So what I did, High Frontier is literally a board game written by a rocket scientist about rocket science. That is, it is about putting satellites in space and there's vectors and Lagrange points. And to be honest, when I wrote Sierra Madre, I said, I honestly think High Frontiers might be a step too far. Like, to me, that's that's kind of my upper limit at heavy. Like, I've looked through the rules on that. I've watched videos. And I'm like, I like heavy games, but that seemed to be getting way too much into the realm of work instead of fun. So I told them that. I let them know. I'm like, look, I like heavy games. I like Vinhost Deluxe. I like Food Chain Magnet. I'm not opposed to heavy games. But High Frontier seems to be a bar. I'm not, I'm not sure I want to go that high up the ladder yet. So I asked them, what would be the best gateway game they have? For their stuff. Like, they don't have gateway games, like in the way we talked about gateway games. And they even worded it well. I, I should bring it up on Facebook, what they wrote me. But they basically said something. They, they are looking at us to look at BIOS Origins in particular because it is these a, a rules light as far as the actual mechanics are concerned. But then the options are huge to the fact that it comes with something called a Rosetta Stone to be able to figure out what everything means. And they, they worded it in a way like, so this is light for our games who are not that are not light whatsoever, was basically the way they, they worded it. Like, like all our games, there is a wide variety of choices, which can be punishing or rewarding, depending on which way you go, right? So I am looking forward to checking that out. And they are looking forward to having us check out future new releases. They didn't seem to be interested in going through stuff that's already out. So which makes sense, right? Companies want us talking about the new hotness, not necessarily their games have been out for a long time. Though some companies, it depends who you're working with. You know what? Other companies are like, here, grab our old crap and talk about it. Crap being <laughs> we a got, bad term. We got tons of this stuff in the warehouse. If yeah. you can move it, go ahead. Like I, I, I crap's the wrong term. Sorry, I shouldn't use that term. But like, for example, when I when we were working with Thames and Cosmos, like they are more than happy to send us anything they have in print. Right? Like they're like, I asked them, I'm like, here, what what are games you think need to be pushed? And they sent us like Imhotep, right? And I'm like, Imhotep is not a new game, but it is a Spiel <laughs> nominator, right? Uh, so, so Ryan, uh, Ryan my... says uh, the uh, third edition of High Frontier is significantly streamlined on the rocket scienceiness. I, I can't say that word. That's possible. Scienceiness, yeah. yes, that is possible. I just know I looked at an edition of it. I think I don't think it was Sierra Madre. I think it was uh, GMT or someone else. I thought, but yeah, it looked to be a bit much for me. So that's looking good. Breakdancing meeples going. It's interesting. It's interesting. That's actually a theme I've seen in a lot of these games. Like you get stuff like uh, TI yep. and games that are just crazy heavy and they they just focus and, and, and become so much tighter games as the editions come out. Yep. So and a lot. So you get a lot of these games that are that that really heavy sciencey stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, are just finally, you know, there are people who love that. I mean, Charles and D oh, would yeah. probably go out there and play the play the heck out of it. But you know, a lot of people want a little bit tighter, and and so there's something to be said about you know taking the the scienceiness, um, and and streamlining it a little bit so that it's there, but it isn't as overwhelming for gamers like you, even if it might be still a little much for gamers like me, for instance. 
No, I, if I remember correctly, when Deanna lit the high frontier with me, she was like, okay, that might be a bit much even for me. So, <laughs> like I said, that, that one's, I, I don't know. I, I didn't look up board game geek ratings or anything like Charles, that. Charles, I'm sure, would, would oh, yeah, play definitely, that kind of. <laughs> I said, I, I do. I love a heavy game now and then. I, I like everything, right? We've said it before. I'm polygamerous. I'll play anything. There are certain styles of games I'm not a big fan of, social deduction being one, most party games. But I do have some social deduction games I like yep. and some party games I like. But, like, I will go from like the lightest silliest dexterity game like go cuckoo and then i will happily then play food chain magnet right like i and i'm happy to play either of them the other one i do want i i have to get into 18xx sometime like more so than i have like i've i've scratched the surface barely that that should be a goal like if we were doing new year's resolutions it'd be like in the next year i'm gonna actually sit down i plan to do it breakout con if breakout con had happened i would have spent six hours learning 18xx games this year until until we went in there and dragged you out because yes. they were never going to stop. Uh, well, who knows? Maybe <laughs> maybe I'd love it. Maybe I'd get right into it. I have no yeah, idea. but you had other games that you needed. Yes, to why? Yeah, soon. there was so stuff I needed. Eventually, I you would have had to have been dragged out. Yeah, I, I was a, like a guest there. I was supposed to be running Gorinto for Grand, Grand Gamers Guild at yeah. Breakout. I, I, that's there's a, there's a bunch of stuff that was meant to happen at that con that didn't happen. All righty. All right, let's get going. I think I think we're good. We can move on to our main topic. We're here to answer your game, gaming, or game night questions. You can send your questions to questions at tabletopbellhop.com or head over to tabletopbellhop.com and click on Ask the Bellhop. As social media works too, I'm everywhere as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. Now, the best way is for questions to go through the website. That way they end up in my email inbox as well as getting a notification on uh, WordPress. I'm not going to say no, though, to a question asked anywhere, whether that be Twitter, Facebook, Yumi Social, WT Social, or you know what? If you happen to see me uh, in the streets on Windsor, just go ahead, hit me up. I'll answer your questions right there. Just stay six feet apart. Well, today we've got a couple of questions dealing with the same topic. First, a question from Corey Christensen, who asked, if you had to remove a game from your collection, which would it be? Then, Yuhu Rutila asked the question. Filling up the first closet is something that every hardcore gamer and collector faces at some point. Then starts the negotiation with your better other about getting more room or selling some of the games away before new purchases. What tips would the Tabletop Bellhop give for selling some items from that precious collection? When to let go of a game? Is it just the number of plays, or do other factors affect the decision? How about a rare collector's item? Where and how do you sell your used games, and how to find the correct price? All right, so both of these excellent questions, thank you both, uh, are dealing with culling a game or games from your personal collection. Now, Yuho is also asking about pricing and selling games. And personally, I think that's actually a second a second topic. It's an equally valuable topic. I think it's worth talking about, but I think we're going to leave that for another episode. I think that could, that might be our two, in two weeks time. We'll see actually in two weeks time, we're on our hundredth episode. I don't know if we want to talk about selling games on our hundredth episode, but it's still, it's, it's one. I'm definitely going to keep that one. It's going to go in our back pocket. I've kept it on our list. So I actually like copied the Yuho's question twice because we're covering part of it today. Cause what I want to talk about today is what games to get rid of if you ever find yourself in the need to thin down your game collection. And by game collection, I am talking all types of tabletop games. Like everything tonight, I can't think of anything that's specific to a specific type of genre. We're talking board games, card games, miniature games, your miniature game armies, your RPGs, your story games, any type of gaming. I think all of these are equally 
valid or, or useful information for all types of gaming. And for the record, if we are going to talk about pricing, I think we're going to bring in the power of our more quiet member of the Bellhop team, as Anshi Games does amazing work every year pricing the huge pile of games for our Extra Life auction, uh, based on her history as a seller of games and memorabilia, uh, as her main job. So, first off... Um I, I'm going to answer quickly the question. They said, which games would you get rid of? I actually have a pile behind me. I don't know if you can see. Oh, there's a pair of, ignore the pants. So we've got Going, Going, Gone, because uh, it's a dexterity auction game, a little too silly. we got Toledo. It's an older Martin Wallace game that I don't play much anymore. I've got Aeon's End, and it's because it's the first printing, and they put out a new printing of the game. So there's three games that I'm getting rid of. There are some more back here. So just examples, because uh, the first question from Chris was, what would you get rid of? Well, there's some of the examples. Now, why you would get rid of them, we'll talk about in a minute. First off, though, I do want to, at least for a little bit, talk about why you might want to get rid of some of your games, or need to, without looking at exactly what to get rid of. And one reason I want to do this is because the reason you are getting rid of games can very much factor into what you choose to get rid of. Now, we aren't going to get into any personal issues here. If your partner hates your games or anything like that, we aren't therapists and we don't play them on TV. Though I don't think on the list we have my wife hates it. That, that could no, be I, I, wait, or my very, very, we, yeah, we're, we're trying to stay away from that. Yes, I, 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 yes, <laughs> yeah, we'll just stop. All right, so so one of the ones, just based on Chris's question, I'm assuming Chris needs money, right? Uh, which, again, we're not going to talk about where to buy and sell. This is a full topic for another day. But you might need to sell your games to pay for more important things. And the important thing here is that gaming is very much a luxury it is a luxury item you don't need games they're not going to protect you they're not putting a roof over your head they're not going to sustain you when you're hungry uh they are a luxury item something you do for fun and if those other parts of your life are suffering getting rid of the games makes sense absolutely you you know Money, money is important, and especially right now in this strange world we live in, uh, there are a lot of people who are just out of work. Uh, there's, you know, the economy is is in a poor way right now, and uh, food on the table trumps everything. Yep. Um, be honest, you know. So, you can always buy more games later when things get better. Yep. All right, next one. You're out of room. Uh, this could mean a few things like uh, you have too many games. You have nowhere to put them. You're remodeling. You're, you, you suddenly uh, have someone new in the household. Uh, trust me, there was a lot of rearranging once I had kids, uh, both because I needed space to put the kids and the fact that I didn't want certain games low enough for them to be able to reach. Or um, you may be dealing with an aging parent or someone moving back home or your kids have gone away to college and they come home, depending on your period of life. Uh, you're moving to a smaller or bigger place. Uh, you may be out of room. Absolutely. There, there are a million different reasons why the space available might change. Um, and, and it isn't always just because you keep buying more games and run out of space. Uh, the actual physical space yeah. you have available to store games in is something that is flexible as life moves on. Um, and and it's, it's something that you need to to watch out for and plan for also, uh, you know, if there is an aging parent in your family that may end up having to come move with you, you might want to think about the fact that if they're moving into the spare bedroom in the future and you right now have that entire spare bedroom as your game room, where is that going to go? 
Yeah, planning ahead. Having having a spare room just seems like every, something everyone should do, not something they ever taught me in school. <laughs> you should just, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. All right, another reason you might get rid of games is you don't play them. Uh, this happened to many of us, I found. Once we hit university, we just stopped playing games and went away from the hobby. And some of us really regret selling what we had then, and others are really happy they held on to what they had then. Uh, but you may not be playing games as often. And this could be for any number of reasons. Uh, again, one of the big ones is your family changes, uh, whether that's someone moves home or you have kids or your family grows or you get married. Uh, your gaming group moves on. Uh, you finish school, people get real jobs, people get married. There are so many reasons why you may not be playing games as often as you'd like, or maybe you just aren't even interested in playing anymore. Yeah, it, uh, gaming can be, for many people, a period of life thing. Uh, maybe you got into RPGs uh, in high school and, you know, bought bookshelves ver uh, full of them, and then you went to university and whatever your major was, you don't have time for that anymore. And you don't have any space in your dorm room for it. And your parents are trying to turn your bedroom into a sewing room. You know, there's, there's a whole lot of different things, or maybe it's later in life and you've, you've had a great long career of playing games, but you're retiring and you want to keep a couple of games around to, that you really deeply enjoy, but the rest of it needs to move on to better homes. Maybe. Uh, here's a one that some people may not think of, but I happens a lot. We, we have a really large gaming community here in Windsor, which is pretty awesome. And someone else already owns all the games. Like, you don't need to keep your own copy if you can always play someone else's. Or a new gaming cafe opens up, right? Gaming cafes are sprouting up all over. Uh, many of them, unfortunately, aren't doing well with the local pandemic. Local? The global pandemic local one too, I guess. Um, but it is becoming more and more common to be able to play games outside your home. You don't need to own them if you can go to the local game store to play them or go to the local cafe or the gaming cafe and play whatever you want there. And then you don't have to worry about maintaining them or anything. They're all taken care of. Or you have that friend that's got the huge collection of a thousand games. Why do you need your collection of 50 if you can always play theirs? Someone else has the games, so you don't necessarily need to have them yourself. Absolutely. Uh, I really don't need to buy any games uh, as long as I can get down to Windsor. <laughs> uh, other than other than a few games my family uh, and I enjoy together, there's really very little per point in me purchasing all that many games because I'm going to play them in Windsor anyway. And uh, out of the thousand games in the Bellhops tabletop, I've probably played about 50 of them at best. I mean, at best. Yeah. At best. Uh, so... Now, what are the big ones? This is the one I see the most often people online, why they sell and get rid of their games, is they're moving and they don't want to pack and move everything. Uh, this would probably be a big one for me. I personally own enough games I never want to move again in my entire life. Between my games and Deanna's books, I just don't want to move. The, the house would have to be falling apart and falling down, I think, before we left, just because I don't want to move all that stuff. And if we did have to, oh, there would be a purge. There would be a large purge, I think, before that happened. Yeah, no, it's uh, moving Moving is a tough time, but it's also a fantastic time to call the herd, uh, to, to, to clean up, whether it's uh, USB cables that you've got sitting in a milk crate <laughs> somewhere, or your games, or your books. Yeah, there you go. Um, you know, we all have something in a drawer somewhere or in a shelf or in a, you know, somewhere that we have been throwing and keeping just in case. And moving is both a great time and a painful time to clean that up. Um, you know, if I had uh, 
dollar for every DC power converter I've got in my closet, among other things. Uh, I'd be I'd be buying a whole lot more stuff. Uh, yes, buying a whole lot more games. I, I, th- uh, but- I think that the the cable box is is the kitchen junk drawer of the 20th century. Yep. <laughs> All right. The, the one thing that's important to note: uh, these are there's probably other reasons we missed. For one, uh, second is all these are valid. These are valid reasons to get rid of games. Don't feel guilty for getting rid of games. Sometimes people can get attached to things, and the the collector urge kicks in. Uh, Fight it, right? There's no shame in culling or curating your game collection. You don't need thousands or hundreds or even 10 games in your collection to be a real gamer. You just have to enjoy playing games. Absolutely. Remember the Bellhop's first law. The best games in your collection are the ones that actually get played. So let's get into the nitty gritty of picking what to get rid of. Now, everything we talk about on this show is pretty much subjective, but... It is more subjective than usual. Everyone is going to find their own reasons to select which of their games to get rid of. What works for one person isn't going to work for someone else, and we just hope this list gives people a number of things they can take into consideration when curating their personal game collection. All right, the first one. Uh, these are in no particular order. They're in the order I thought of them when working on show notes over the last couple of days. So the first one, I want to bring up the Jones theory. We have talked about this one before. Uh, back in 2009, Cody Jones from the Game On podcast suggested a theory for game collecting, something he very strongly believed in. His theory was that you should never have more than one game of a single type in your collection. For example, if you play worker placement games and you already own Kalis, you shouldn't also pick up, say, Lords of Waterdeep, unless you pick up Lords of Waterdeep to replace and get rid of Kalis. Now, personally, I think Cody's taken it a little too far. I think this is a bit over the top and ridiculous, but the idea that one game can Jones theory another, to me, is valid. Because over the years, I will often find that one game that has something in common with another game mechanically will do things better. And that I pretty much never feel like playing the original game anymore. Now, the example game for me would be Dominion. Once games like Star Realms and Ascension came out with the rotating market of cards in the middle and multiple resources, I found I pretty much never had the desire to play Dominion anymore. Now, I didn't go full on Jones theory, because if I did that, I'd only be allowed to keep one deck builder, and there's no way I'm going to do that, because I have a number of different deck builders in my collection, all that to me scratch different itches. Now, my current favorites being Clank and Tyrants of the Underdark nowadays. But I gotta admit, I can't remember the last time I played any version of Dominion, or even Trains, which many people considered a Dominion killer, even that's long in the past for me now. So I think the idea of games that have been replaced by similar games is an extremely valid way to curate your collection. And this is probably the main way I curate my own. So indeed, I think the the level one takes this to is important. Uh, I'm not going to give up my DC deck builder just because I have a Harry Potter deck builder because they scratch different itches. Uh, even though they are both in some ways very similar, um, they just do different things for me, and and my family plays them differently. You know, I can I can get different people in the family down at the table with them, uh, but I wouldn't buy a new copy of Yahtzee just because it was a different theme than my Doctor Who Yahtzee. Uh, that's just ridiculous because I mean it's Yahtzee. It 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 there's there's really nothing. You need one version of Yahtzee. <laughs> so you know that's 
what uh, the game the game doesn't change. You know, if you're buying a different version, uh, Monopoly is one of those games where you could argue multiple copies because there are now some newer versions that are doing different things. But even that's a bit of a stretch. And really, if you've got more than one Monopoly in your collection, you're probably doing something wrong anyway. So. <laughs> I, I it, to me for I, I don't enjoy any version of Monopoly I've tried, but it would have to do something different. It would have to have a new mechanic. So, for example, Monopoly Risk actually has a thing where like if the Fellowship gets to the end, the game ends. So at least it has something. Oh no, no, not Monopoly. What did I say? Monopoly Risk. Wow, that came out wrong. Lord of the Rings Risk. I actually like because you're playing Risk and it's on the Lord of the Rings map and it's pretty much Risk. But there's a time track where if the Fellowship gets the Ring to Mount Doom, the good guys win, which adds that new level to it so it's not just risk right or risk legacy versus risk i i get but if you're just buying i don't know all the different versions of risk or monopoly that that gets into collectors and i gotta say this is not an episode for collectors except for the fact that maybe look and figure out why you're collecting so much stuff and maybe second guess some of that collection but collectors are different than board game players yeah we're talking we're definitely talking here about games to be played uh not that uh you know that mint in box game that is going to sit up on a shelf until it's worth a thousand dollars 50 years from now and most board games that never happens there there are partially because of jones (laughs) partially because of that uh uh, yes the the fact that new versions of games tend to be better than old versions and the uh mechanics are constantly evolving and usually in a positive manner and in a good way new versions of games tend to be better and new uses for mechanics tend to jones theory out old versions yeah generally i mean for board games unless you've got components that are going to become valuable in it it's you know it, it, there, there are that. exceptions of course yeah. to the rule look at dark tower and look at a uh, hero quest but again component uh components play a large part of dark That's tower true. yeah um, dark tower in particular so again it, a lot you really have to i mean you need to know your market if you're going to get into collecting and then you should know whether or not you're calling or not so <laughs> that's true and that gets into <laughs> pricing and that was that other topic so back on track um uh, one of the other things one of the biggest ones i again look at when i'm calling my own collection is when's the last time you played a particular game now this is a lot easier for those of us who use board game geek or some other type of software to record your place um also for people who do things like box topping i don't personally know anyone that's it's box topping but this is where you write your plays in the top of the box so you could look and see when's the last time you played your games uh we also talked when we were talking about organizing your collection about using post-it notes to mark when you played a game and then you can look at which ones and every month you switch colors and you can look at your old colors but whatever the whole thing is that if you haven't played in a game, a game in your collection for a very long time, ask yourself why. Uh, look at the game. Do you want to play it right now? Like, are you looking at it? Do you want to go play? If no, that's probably a good candidate for culling. Now, for me, this usually happens when I look at a game I haven't played in a long time, and I will find a reason why that's perfectly valid, right? So I'll have games I haven't played in a long time that I keep, and there's a reason for it. Like, for example, a game I only play with my family at Thanksgiving, right? Which, for me, is Ticket to Ride. I'm not a huge Ticket to Ride fan, but my extended family love it, so I keep that game to bring out that once or twice a year, if it even gets out that often. Or... Is this the perfect game for an intro game night with kids? Because I run local events here in Windsor, so I will keep a game that there, I have no interest in playing whatsoever, but I'd like to have on hand when we're we're having, like, say, our Extra Life event, and we know we're going to have kids coming in, younger kids. Though I rarely play the game myself. But other times, I'll look at a game and I can't find a good reason why I haven't played it. Like, huh, 
And sometimes it's that simple where it's like, no, I, I haven't played this in two years and I don't want to play it now. Let's just get rid of it. More often, of course, it's in between, right? I look at the game and I go, huh, I wonder why I haven't played that. And usually I'm like, oh, I remember, that was a good game. Why haven't I played? I should dust this off and play it again. And that's where I personally give games one chance. It's 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 a one and done. I, I will dust off the, the game. I'll put together a game night. I'll convince Dan to play. I'll play with the kids. I'll get people over well, again on a normal time of year. And we'll give it a play. And then if I enjoy that play, it'll remind me why I had the game on my shelf, why I bought it, and it'll stay in my collection. No problem. But often that final play will remind me why I haven't played the game in so long. And at that point, it's time to get rid of it. Yeah, and sometimes that replay is just really important. Human memory is intensely fallible. And there's a very good chance that if it's been sitting on that shelf for a long time, you're completely misremembering your fondness for a game that's sitting dusty on the shelf. Seeing it again in a new light can really bring to light issues you'd glossed over in your mind with that last play. Uh, maybe the game was only fun because of the people you played it with at the time. Even bad games can be enjoyable in the right setting with the right group. But is it worth taking up the shelf space in hopes that that magic moment will be reignited? Another one, really simple. I, I probably should have had this first. As I said, I wrote this list in the order I thought of them. Is the game just isn't fun or isn't fun anymore? Uh, this definitely is the biggest reason to get rid of a game, right? Sometimes I break out a game during game night and it flops. It just goes over terribly. Uh, sometimes that's a new game I picked up. I didn't do all the due diligence beforehand or I grab something where there's a ton of hype and I don't necessarily agree with it. Or nowadays I get a review copy of a game and it's not something that I ended up actually enjoying. Often though, it's an older game that I've had in my collection for some time that I haven't played recently, which kind of goes into the last section. If you find yourself playing a game and not having fun, that's probably the best indication of all to get rid of it. Now, before you do that, I do suggest this. We've mentioned this a few times on the show before. Review the rules. Make sure you're playing properly. Uh, more than once, I've had a totally terrible game experience, wondered how people could love a specific game, only to learn the reason it was so terrible is that we were playing it wrong. And make sure you're, you, you are playing by the proper rules and it's not the game's fault. It's the game's fault that it's bad, not your own, that you're ruining the game. So it's worth noting that sometimes if you're always playing a game extreme and not enjoying it as a result, maybe the game doesn't lend itself to your style and should still be considered in the culling, even though you haven't been playing it properly. Sometimes that, that regularly playing it improperly is a sign that either the game is, has got a problem and, and it, may, it may be a rule problem, but it may not be the rule problem. It may be your group just doesn't want to play games in the style of that game. And so you you just tend to automatically drift into a certain way of playing that that game's fighting you on. Yeah, if you find yourself having to house rule the game, to me, that's find a better game, like in my opinion. I am not someone who enjoys house ruling. I, I, I Again, we're talking role-playing games are a little different here than, than board games. Board games in general, I won't house rule. I'll just go play something else other with than, rules I enjoy certain more. beer games? Yeah, there's a certain... <laughs> I said in general. There's always the exceptions. All right. 
Here's a reason you may want to get rid of a game. The game itself, or possibly someone involved with the production of the game, is problematic. We live in a world right now that's undergoing a lot of social change. A lot of us are learning about the privileges we have and how that impacts those around us. We're learning about things that we used to think were cool that actually, when you dive into them, are actually quite uncool. Now, this is a learning process for most of us, including Sean and I. Uh, being 40-something white men, we probably have more privilege than most people on the planet. Some topics that we used to think were okay in gaming can actually be quite problematic, and you may no, want to, no longer want to play those games because of it. Also, with a lot more voices coming forward with reports of mistreatment, harassment, and abuse, it's now become quite common to learn that someone involved with the production of a game is someone you no longer want to support. All of these are very valid reasons to remove a game from your collection. Now, many people might argue that we're talking about erasing history or cancel culture or hiding from truths, and I cannot disagree more. A game that offers a chance for discussion and learning about historical facts involved in, for instance, the British colonization of an area and its effects on the indigenous population has absolute value. That is history. While a game that slaps a Britain and France fight to control country X theme on a game, ignoring the plight of the country and the indigenous peoples just isn't valid. It's just a cheap excuse to slap a, th a theme on, on a game that is probably an unnecessary theme. It doesn't teach and it glosses over real hard facts about periods and events uh, because those people might have been, you know, the designers might be uncomfortable with talking about those, those topics, but then don't talk about them. Don't introduce them into the game. Uh, and at this point, don't support the games that, that aren't willing to talk about it, real issues. Next up, going to space. The game itself takes up a lot of room. Now, this is going to matter the most for people moving or running out of room. Uh, sometimes a good way to pick what will go is to find the game that takes up the most room. Now, there is one sidetrack here that I think it's a little off topic, but I think is worth looking at, is one of the things you can do if a game's taking up a lot of room is make it take less room, which is take games in big boxes and put them in smaller boxes. Um, she, unfortunately, she's not in the chat room tonight, but our friend Danielle and her husband Owen have these photo cases that they picked up that are awesome. They are for holding photographs, and they hold 16 separate little packages to hold them all in a nice big case and they are managing to fit 16 games in each of these and their trunk now has three of those so like they're bringing i'm not doing the math at 16 times three off the top of my head they're bringing out a ton of games in a small area and no getting rid of board game boxes is not a crime i've done it you can do it too just break them down put them in the recycling with the rest of the cardboard now back to actually getting rid of games though I will admit I've done it. I have literally looked at my shelf and went, wow, that is a big box. Okay, here, I'll specifically call it out. The original Italian printing of Planet Steam. This makes Fantasy Flight coffin boxes look small. That box did not fit anywhere. I literally had it on top of my bookshelf because it was the only place it would go and it still overhung like three inches. This was just taking up a ton of room. And while I like the game, it's okay, Planet Steam, it's, it's Mule, the board game. I didn't love it. So it had to go. And there it went into an extra life auction where it raised some good money for the Children's Miracle Network. So also, think, yep, no, I was going to say that I, I think we really missed an opportunity here. Okay. You should have Ogre behind you. 
I could, yeah. That, that, <laughs> one's, that one's on my floor in the other room. That's true. That could have been behind us. Now, the other thing is, besides taking up room on your shelf, besides like taking up physical space, games can take up too much room on the table. Now, I personally don't have this problem, but if all you have to play on is a coffee table or a fold-up table, or even a smaller kitchen table, having a copy of Twilight Imperium 4 in your collection might not be very useful because you're never going to fit it on that table. Yeah. So, I mean, I've gotten rid of all my DC deck box or uh, builder boxes because I got the, the expansion designed to hold all of the different decks currently and in the future, uh, at least for Equitia. And and the amount of cardboard that was was crazy. I mean, I had like three shelves of DC deck builder boxes, even though some of them are small. Uh, a lot of the bigger ones just take up a ton of space and they're really unnecessary. Yes, yeah, for some pretty art, but nothing you can't find, you know in a bunch of other places, including comic books, where you want where you want the, the pretty art. Uh, and so now it's down to one box that holds everything I've got, plus, uh, you know, future expansions to go. I don't. People have a hard time to get rid of the boxes. I did at first. I think it's like ripping up your first card in a legacy game. Now that I've done it, I'm like, nah, it's fine. Let's well, now you're mean about it. Now, now you do it. Now you do yeah. it for the camera and tease people. The only reason I keep expansion boxes nowadays is in case I think I may resell the game. If, I, if I'm not positive I'm going to keep it, I often do it for campaign games because once I'm done the campaign, I'm not going to need the box anymore. But other than that, I get rid of expansion boxes. Another reason to get rid of a game is that it is no longer supported uh, out of print or whatever, no longer new content coming out, or there's a new edition. Now, this one is obviously far more common in regards to RPGs, role-playing games, and miniature war games, because, man, how many editions of Warhammer are out there now? But it does happen with the occasional board game. Now, again, I do have an aside. Just because a game is out of print doesn't mean you can't play it anymore. The uh, RPG police, the, the tabletop game police, aren't going to show up and get mad at you and arrest you for playing the second edition of the game when the third edition's out. That said, though, if you are into organized play or tournament support or new content games that require an influx of new content coming regularly, that can be a really good reason to part with your collection of whatever the dead game happens to be. So you may even be able to help to pay for a new edition you've backed on Kickstarter with the sale of the original uh, yes. version from your own collection, for instance. But in this one, be really aware of the sunk cost fallacy. Just because you've already spent a ton of time or money on something in the past doesn't mean that you need to hold on to it to, to make that cost have a yes. value. It doesn't at all. Uh, that cost is gone and done. Um, one other thing that, that I thought up just as you were discussing is games with digital content. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this in the past, and uh, uh, I, I was thinking specifically about the racing car app that just basically came back from the dead recently. Yes. Um, Whereas, you know, some games are have apps or other digital content that may die, right? The servers are all taken down because whoever, whatever company went out of business or just stopped supporting it. If your game relied on that app and it's dead now, that's a really good reason to yeah. get it out of your collection. Yeah, the, the biggest one that I can think of in the board game industry for that is Golem Arcana, which was an app-based miniature war game where you had this special Bluetooth pen where you would tap on the miniature and tap where it moved, and it did all the math for you. It did all the line of sight and how terrain, and it supposedly had all these modifiers and did all this work for you, and it looked really neat. And that was one of the first where the app just vanished, and 
anyone who has it now has a bunch of pre-painted miniatures and that's about it so and there are others there are other examples now another reason you may want to get rid of games is you have no one to play them with now personally i find this the saddest reason of all uh to get rid of games because you have no one to play with but i get it it happens uh now way back in july last year we did talk about starting your own gaming club you can find that in the blog or just tune in to episode number 51 of our podcast join the club now i suggest trying something like that first right uh try to try to meet local gamers, try to find players. But you know what? Sometimes that's just not possible for whatever reason. If the only person you have to game with is your best friend, having a bunch of four plus player games is probably just going to be depressing. Even when you do have a regular group or there are local gamers around, there may be games you can never find players for. Uh, this could be for a number of reasons. The, the, the one that always sticks into my head is uh, collectible card games or miniature games, right? If no one else around you is playing Corvus Belly's Infinity, that Infinity Army is not going to get played. Or if no one else is playing the latest collectible card game out there and you, you need other players to play with. If there's no local players or no local organized play events, you're probably stuck. The same thing I find with super heavy games, right? If you are if you are a heavy gamer and the people that live in your area are into lighter games, you may not be able to get your food chain magnets, your high frontiers to the table. Or similarly, if you play forward like the super long epic war games, the, the, the there's a, a war game out there with like 100 hours of play to finish the campaign. If you're the only one that's into that, and just having the game on yourself doesn't help you. Not being able to find players is actually the reason my dad, who was a board game collector long before I got into it, got rid of his game collection. And it's a very good reason to remove some games from your collection if you can't find people to play them with. Yeah. Evaluating your own situations and likely futures is important. And again, as we mentioned earlier, don't let a rosy view of the past color, color the reality of now. Now, one thing we didn't take into account here and uh, is brought up in the chat room uh, is solo play. Yeah. Uh, because neither neither one of us, well, you especially, aren't big on solo play. No, not really. Now, the chat room brings up a good point that there are a lot of fan-developed solo play options for games. So if you're having trouble play, uh, you know, finding someone to play a game, there are options out there. Personally, I found I'm not actually a huge fan of some of those. Uh, for instance, the actual uh, the op put out a solo version of the Harry Potter uh, board game during the uh, you know for for pandemic sufferers, uh, and I went through, I grabbed it, and I went through the rules because I'm a big fan of that Harry Potter uh, deck builder. But I personally think it's impossible. Uh, huh. Go without actually sitting down, going through the rules and understanding the game as well as I do and, and having, uh, you know, the, the at least one of the two expansions, um, I struggle to see how it would be even conceivable to win that game based on their setup of the, of the initial layout. So uh, your mileage may vary. Co-op games are supposed to be hard, so maybe. Uh, the thing here that to me that doesn't fit this particular topic, but maybe it is a, a good call that before you get rid of a game, see if there's a way to play it solo. Yep. To me, that's more about curating your collection on the buying side. If you know you don't have local gamers around, try to make sure to buy games that play low player counts. Try to make sure you're getting the games that have solo plays. What is good to see is more and more games nowadays are coming with a solo play. So here is a trick when looking to try to look at your collection objectively and not just be looking at it with the, the rosy glasses and the, the fond memories, right? So you're going to look at each game you have in your collection and ask yourself a few questions. And the first is, do I want to play this? 
If someone asked me to play this right now, would I say yes or no? Would I sit down and play it? And if I didn't own this game, would I go out and buy it? If you're answering no to all three of these questions, it's probably a really good indication you're not going to miss the game if it wasn't in your collection anymore. Yeah. Now, if you review games and have your collection on BGG, this may be as easy as opening up your collection on the on the website, sorting by rating and looking at all those games below a certain cutoff level. For instance, if you follow the official Board Game Geek rating guide, uh, if if it's below a five, it shouldn't be in your collection. <laughs> yeah. Uh, There's very little reason to keep anything that you've rated below a five, assuming yeah. you are following, which everyone should follow those. Board Game Geek ratings are useless unless you actually follow the legend. That's a different rant for a different yeah. episode. <laughs> we've done but, that. We've done that rant. Yeah. Yes, we have. All right. Uh, we talked about this and reasons to get rid of games, but this is a little more info. Is someone else already owns the game. If you have a regular game group or play at a local game store or a gaming cafe or involved in some form of gaming club, it's highly likely that multiple members of the group own the same games. Now, often this is normal and fine because not everyone plays with the same people all the time or every week, but this is a great way to decide to get rid of a game in your personal collection. I particularly use this one ahead of time. This is what I use when I'm shopping for games. I will often talk myself out of buying something because I know I can play someone else's copy, but I have done it when culling my collection too. There is no reason for me to own Underwater Cities if I can call up Chad any day and set up a game night that weekend to play Underwater Cities. Absolutely. And well, sure, that other player may move on and you can... Get a copy. You can get a copy again, possibly at an even better price yeah. or replace it with a newer version or a better game of that type. You know, if if you always played Dominion with your friend, now's the chance you can go out and get Ascension. <laughs> yep. Introduce them to a new game. Yeah. And, and that's well, one of those things. If you have a tight knit group, talk about these things, right? Like it just doesn't make sense if you're playing with the same people week after week. You should have a group collection in that way, unless you're the only one buying games. Assuming it, anytime I'm going to buy a game in, with certain people in the local community, I'll be like, do you own this yet? Yes or no? And if not, I'm thinking about buying it. Do you want to play? And like, have that conversation. It's worth doing. Yeah. And uh, if you're always playing Chad's version, you're not playing yours. So it's not doing anyone any good. All right. Some board games are just too much work. Uh, we kind of hinted about this earlier when we were talking about heavy games, right? Uh, while the hobby is generally about having a good time, there are a number of games out there that can be work or turn into work. Now, by work, I'm talking about a variety of different things and forms. Um, and what some people consider work, other players will consider fun. So, uh, very broadly, things I'm thinking of here are the time to set up or tear down a game. Uh, the difficulty in learning the rules... Or the difficulty in teaching the rules. There are a couple games in my collection I almost never play because I'm always with new gamers, showing new people the games, and I don't want to go through the, the, the work of teaching the games. Maybe the game requires a level of rules mastery for it to be fun. Or a number of additional purchases need to be made to actually enjoy the game or get the most out of it. This is definitely true of most of the miniature games or card games. Uh, and when we're getting into miniatures, there's all the extra stuff, the ephemera that's required, like scenery and a 4x4 table and measuring tapes and all the other stuff to make the game enjoyable. Models that need to be made. Painting that needs to be done. Or looking at RPGs, there are some RPGs out there that still require hours of prep before each session compared to games that can be played as soon as you pick them up. 
anytime a game stops being fun and starts turning into work where it's it's drudgery, it's something you don't look forward to doing, that's a good indication that you probably want to get rid of that game and move on to something you're going to find more enjoyable. So this goes back partially to space as well. Uh, if you only have your kitchen table to play on, are you not playing some games because the setup and takedown that can't be avoided and you need to eat every day? Yeah. <laughs> uh, are there accessibility issues that make Good the one. game a choice to play? Maybe the game isn't quite as accessible, but you've modded it to make it accessible for in whatever reason. I know Ryan does spreadsheets uh, and things, you know, but is is the effort it takes to play that modified version really keeping it uh, from play, getting played on the table? Another reason you may want to get rid of a game is the game itself is in bad shape. Now, this can happen for a number of reasons from the game being old, uh, just getting old over time, moldy basements, hot attics, flooding, uh, just normal use. Cards get creased and boards bend and warp over time. Any number of things can happen to the components of a game to ruin them. Now, this could make a game unplayable, which in that case, just toss it. But it could also mean that you just never want to play the game because it's just kind of gross or it's depressing to look at or all the cards are just beat up. It's just in such sad shape. Games getting ruined over time is something that happens and ruined games should be discarded and then replaced if it's something you still enjoy and it's still in print. If you played a game enough to ruin the game, that's probably a good indication that you should tip that company by just buying another copy. I know that's something I firmly believe in. I do not use card sleeves in general. And there have been games I have worn out. I've used the card so much. I'm like, ooh, that's in rough shape. And I bought a second copy of the game. Yeah, we've talked about protecting games in the past. We have an entire episode about, you know, what you can do to, to protect all the different things if you if you go that way. But despite that, things happen. Or... Maybe it was a hand-me-down. Those family games from the 70s that you have fond childhood memories of, but your parents put them in a basement 25 years ago and they just sat there unprotected. They may be just ready to go and move on. <laughs> Find a digital version, maybe. Yes, perhaps. Most of those games aren't worth playing anyway. You play them once for nostalgia's sake, then you get rid of them. You're like, all right, I did it. I played it again. All right, my final reason that I have for tonight, and we will be jumping to the lobby to see if they have anything we missed just after this, is you beat the game. Uh, you finished the module. You completed the campaign. You have done all the things. Now, while most board games are endlessly replayable, many RPG products like modules and adventures are run through once, and then you're done with them. Campaign games are the same, uh, as are, of course, most legacy games. Also, besides like finishing the content in the game, it is possible that you or your group or someone online and you learned about it has solved the game. Now, this could be something like an escape room in a box where you only play it once and once you played it or a murder mystery game where you already know the answer. But it could also be a game where someone has figured out a winning strategy that works every time or an exploit or a loophole that no longer makes the game fun. If you've completed everything a game has to offer, there is no reason to keep it. Though I gotta admit, I know there's no way I'm gonna convince any role player to get rid of their old modules through this advice. I'm gonna try though, because for some reason we just seem to think oh, I gotta hoard it. I, I we we played through Tomb of Horrors. I gotta keep my copy of Tomb of Horrors. I don't know. I don't know what the thought. Like, am I gonna run it again for another group? Like, uh, I'm gonna lose my RPG group and get another group and then I'll run it again. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But honestly, you can probably get rid of any of the stuff you finished. And I don't like. 
there are so many new experiences out there. Gone are the days where only a couple new good games are released every year. There are thousands of great games coming out. How like or and and looking at D and D modules or RPG modules, like there is new content being put out constantly in in both the mass market and the indie scene. Instead of trying thinking you're gonna relive that heyday and play that module again, just find something new. There are plenty of new experiences out there to keep you busy, without needing to retell the stories that have already been told. And again, we're back into our sunken cost fallacy in many cases. We spent so much time on this, it would be a shame to get rid of it. Well, why? Take a picture, blog about your experiences, save those. Unless you're a DM for hire, you're probably never going to run that again. And what are the actual odds you're going to need that one obscure rule that was on page 67 in the sidebar about how to hang your sword above your bed safely at night before you go to sleep? Take a picture. It'll last longer. Well, that's it for our suggestions on how to decide what game or games to remove from your collection and how to better curate your tabletop game collection. We're going to head over to the lobby now and see if the awesome folk gathered there have anything to add. All right, of course, the big question here is what did we miss? What are other reasons? What what have you done? Why why have you gotten rid of a game before? And I also, there was a ton of comments today. I got to say, excellent looking chat room today. We had a lot of back and forth going on. That was awesome to see. Yeah, we got uh, Pennywise is mentioning that there is a game in his collection that's under a five because it was a gift from his mother-in-law, but she does check up and ask to play it regularly. So it does get to the table. It gets played. And and so, I'm, you know, that's fine. You know, as long as it's getting to the table, then it's got a reason to be there, even if it's uh, not the best. Yeah, if the, if the game is getting played, that's my biggest thing, right? Like we call it the, the bellhop's law. The, the, I, I, I should find the full version. It's been so long since I've said the it's full version bottom. of it. It is down at the bottom. I'm trying to do it without scrolling. But basically, it's off the top of my head, the, the whole thing to me is it doesn't matter how much the game costs, how beautiful the miniatures are, how great the components are, how good the art is, how much hype there were, how much the Kickstarter raised, who the designer is, how many people locally have it. All that actually matters is does the game hit the table? That is the games that are good. The games that actually get played are the best games in your collection. And anything you can do to get that game to the table more often is worth doing, which goes into why I think box inserts are worth it and why I think some people should sleep. Except for you, because you never get a game. Yeah, I don't know. That's okay. In general, box inserts should (laughs) be worth it. Most people, on the other hand. Yes. Uh, (laughs) I I am cursed. If I get a box insert for a game, I never play the game again. Except for Gloom. Gloom is the the one exception. Gloomhaven. the rule. Yeah, Gloomhaven. Um, but yes, in general, that that is the the best games in your collection. The ones that get played doesn't yeah, interestingly, matter. Interestingly, there was a, a discussion here about uh, turning uh, box tops and things into wall art. Fair and enough, that's great. You know, if you have finished Risk Legacy or Pandemic Season One, or you know, you you've burned through Gloomhaven and your map is complete, there are some great ways that you can display that stuff yes. without it taking up space on your shelf. Uh, so. Again, that is part of culling the collection. If you're turning it into something else, if you're recycling it in some way, uh, then that is culling your collection. Yeah, it's it's still curating your collection. Ask your friends, because that's what happened to me, is I had a friend who wanted all my box tops. So I'm like, all right, cool. So I gave them a bunch of box tops. They did something artsy with them. I don't know. Absolutely. Someone can make useful, right? Yep. Great. 
Uh, so the, there is the point. So one of the things, and we actually, um, it's one of the topics that Chris Nizak has asked us to cover, and I haven't felt comfortable doing it because I've been running RPGs as RPG artifacts. And yes, there is the desire to keep an artifact as a memorabilia from a session. And I think that is why a lot of the RPG DMs keep their modules is that memory of we ran through that, we beat that, we did that, or I killed all the character, whatever it happens to be on the player side, the DM side. I think that's part of it, but honestly, I don't know. RPGs, I will admit RPGs. I'm a collector. Yeah, I, I play RPGs, but I literally collect RPGs and I keep them in. I have a copy of Ravenloft and it's in a plastic bag sealed and I don't open it up unless I have to. Right. But that's collecting games is different. than. Yeah. And again, we're, we've talked about the difference between collecting. But I mean, if you if you aren't a collector, if you're just a DM or a player and you have beaten um, the, you know, Ravage on the Rhine or whatever, the, whatever the uh, <laughs> what's the rake? Uh, the, the death on the reek death on the reek if you're done that game you know sure there are probably going to be a couple of rule clarifications or extra monsters in there you want but again take a picture put it on a blog PDF. post it out there pdf it there's a lot of ways to to keep it without taking up a bunch of space um and and, and for me or especially as the memorabilia concept it makes way more sense to share a blog or a Facebook post or something that actually gets into the experiences and lets you remember the yeah. fun and the experiences more than just having a piece of, you know, a, a bundled piece of papers stuck on a shelf somewhere that you may not only see once a year. So just uh, jumping through the chat, Pennywise noted that one of their, their not to buy rules, if others in the game group owns them or are buying it, they will not buy a game. Uh, Red Meeple Ryan also said, I made the exception for a few games is the person who owns them isn't showing up at local events as often. And there's an interest in playing those games and, and they're not happening. So yeah, that's it. That is, that's the downfall, right? Is, is the, uh, the seller's remorse, I guess that you get rid of the game. And then, you know, I said, I can always play Chad's copy of underwater cities while Chad moves away. Right. It, it could happen, unfortunately. So there is that risk, but again, there's so many games out there. Well, like and if, also if I never that... could play that one game again, I'm, there's no game in my collection that I would be devastated. I could never play again. There's just so many other games. But there's also the fact that if you sold it, you're probably going to be able to buy it for cheaper than you ever did before because that game is a year old or two years old or three years old. And Tabletop underscore uh, Deals is a great place to find that game again at significantly reduced prices. Yep. Uh, Ryan uh, had wished there's an example. He'd wish he'd kept Ad Astra when he did a call when he was moving. Uh, Ad Astra is a neat game. I did. I called that one. Every now and then I think about trying that one again um people do not like cody's um co- what i jones the jones theory is not popular around here which i totally agree uh again game stretch different inches penny wise notes that um keeping a uh, multiple types of games because they scratch different inches and i think that's totally valid it's when you play that game and you realize you're like oh this is a better version of yeah that's when you make that choice you're like wow this is a better version of x uh, an example of that tante coro is a better version of dominion because it has the chambering mechanic, which is really neat way to call your deck. And it's like, how long do I keep that made in my deck before I chamber it for more points because I still want to use it? Well, that gets totally Jones theoried by Tyrants of the Underdark, which has a so much cooler theme. Sorry, anime fans, but Drow and Intrigue and D&D to me is cooler than Maid servicing me. And 
I think that is a much cooler version because you have the inner circle where you can promote your cards into the inner circle, which is very similar to chamber rules. I no longer feel I any need to keep Dominion or Tante Coro now that I have Tyrants of the Underdark. Well, Ryan said earlier, you know, I choose to interpret the law as games with similar mechanism and gameplay experience with yeah. different themes. Uh, choose and keep one. Uh, and so that that's really the, the big thing. Uh, if if the gameplay experience between the two games isn't the same, then it's not really it. it Jones yeah, theory doesn't true. actually apply. Yeah. Uh, whereas if it's just, oh, look, this is Ghostbusters and this is the exact same theme with mm -hmm. something else painted on top or the exact same game with, yeah. you know, a different theme painted on top, then pick one. Come on. <laughs> yep. Now, Ryan also pointed out a really interesting thing that Fantasy Flight started to do is their newer editions of games came in smaller boxes. And I will admit, I bought a new copy of Alhambra because it fit better on my shelf than my old copy of Alhambra. I gave away my copy of Alhambra as a, a contest reward, a, a board game blitz reward, because it was in mint shape. And I got a new version of Alhambra because it fit better on my shelf. And Fantasy Flight did that. So he's mentioning Planet Steam. I was talking about Planet Steam being this massive coffin box. When Fantasy Flight put it out, they switched the pieces to plastic. They reduced the price to like $20 instead of 160 And they put it in a box this big, which is great. So that is a reason you may want to get rid of a game too, is just to get a different version like that so another example is like descent second edition is no longer in a coffin box or room war second edition is now in another one love to find a new home for BattleTech, the collectible card game don't need to hold on to it but don't want to throw the cards out uh we sold all our ccgs to the local game store you may want to talk to your local game store yeah um did i not say golem arcana when i was talking about the game with the app i might have said the wrong name golem arcana uh, is maybe. the proper name I see talk about solo games. Again, check. See if there, there's a way to yep. play it. Yeah, and a lot of it depends on, on how much effort that is. I, I have found that a lot of uh, the solo games uh, really tend to be, you know, it, it's great if that's the only way you ever play the game, but yeah. you really need, you know, set up the, this 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 way and this that way and this that way. And, and then if you want to go back and play it the other way, you've got to, you know, re redo everything mm -hmm. to get it back that way. Um, so I think uh, some of that solo stuff is great if that's the only way yep. you ever play the game. Otherwise, this, we get into that too much work. This is another reason we didn't have on the list. I just thought of one. Digital versions of games. Ascension is the perfect example for me. I will admit I did not get rid of my current Ascension, but I probably could. I haven't bought any new ones. So nowadays, many board games are getting converted over to app form or Steam versions or Tabletopia or Tabletop Simulator. There are digital versions of a lot of games. And some of them, I, I'll admit, mostly I prefer the physical versions, but some are actually better. Uh, an example for me, again, Ascension is so much easier just to pick which expansions you want to use, which promo cards, hit start, and then dial up Sean. Well, I don't dial him up, but invite Sean to a game. Like, I can play with people all over the world, and I don't have to shuffle that deck. I don't have to track yeah, I mean, the little beats. Trying to, trying to shuffle a 300-card exactly is, is not is ridiculous whereas the app you just sit down and play tap 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 play it's just and i mean it's it's a good experience the gap the yep. app is well well laid out um it is an enjoyable experience to play that game on the app um whereas and, and it's just taken away all of the unnecessary mm -hmm. unenjoyment work to play that game yeah star realms i haven't bought a star realms expansion i bought the i bought three 
copies of the original set because you can play that game up to six players. And I actually really like the Admiral way to play. So I own three copies, but I didn't pick up Colony Wars. I didn't pick up the Gambit packs. I didn't pick up any of those because the app's so good. Another example is Small World. I love Small World on a tablet. Now, it does not play well on a phone just because it's too small. But if you've got a tablet, pick up. It's actually Small World 2 is the app for some reason. Uh, because they put out a, someone had put out a, a, a non-official Small World app. And the name was taken on the Apple iStore. So they had to call this one Small World 2. But it's Small World 2, which is the original Small World. And just, it does all the math. It does it. You just drag your pieces. Like, physically use your finger to drag it. Just like you'd move your chips. Without having to count things and pick them up and... Small World comes with a ton of chits that are a pain. To, it's easy to play because they come nice and sorted in a tray. So like to set up, it's easy. It's here are your guys, here are your guys, here you go. But clean up, oh, it's such a pain. Yeah, Humble Bundle is uh, is is what Pennywise is mentioning in the chat. Oh, yeah, Absolutely, definitely. that's where you know I've got so many games uh, from from Humble Bundle uh, pickups that I, I can't imagine playing in real life uh, yeah. anymore like there's just there's so many games now that asmodee has put out especially or there's other yeah, as games as well but asmodee puts the, the the majority of them out where it's like yeah no i mean one of the one of the few exceptions to that rule would be terraforming mars yeah uh, because business. our experiences and other people have said differently but our experiences have been terraforming mars is just not as good a game uh, despite the fact that yeah, even if you ignore the fact that you don't get the expansions on the, on the online game, uh, it's just a better game in person and it's faster in person, which is weird for a digital game. Yeah, it's, it's being able to see everything laid out without having to click a million different things to see everything else. I would much rather play physical Terraforming Mars. So there's something to add to the list. I'll, I'll make sure when I do up this on the blog post, I will add game has a digital version as one of the ways, one of the reasons to get rid of it. I did, Ryan is pointing out there is the Ghostbuster re-theme of Ghost Fighting Treasure Hunters. So yeah, we were talking was, about... That was, that was, but that was, does not Jones Theory Ghost Fighting Treasure Hunters because the company that produced it made a Quality, poor quality version yeah. of the Ghostbusters version for some reason. They had just put it out at the same quality as the original. I'd be perfectly cool with that. All right. I think we're good. Yeah. So that's I'm it for our. You're good. Yeah. That's it for our main topic tonight. Remember, you can find lots of gaming topics and advice like this over on the blog at tabletopbellhop.com. Just click on gaming advice at the top of the page. Uh, finally, just if you've got a gaming or game night question for us, head over to the website, click on Ask the Bellhop, or just fire off an email to questions at tabletopbellhop.com. Up next, a look at Codenames Duet, a team-based based version of the now classic party game Codenames. This game was re received as a review copy and no other compensation was provided. All right, Codenames Duet was designed by Vlada Shavadal and Scott Eaton. It features some great diverse artwork from Thomas Kurchowski. Here in North America, it's published by CGE or Czech Games Edition. Uh, Codenames Duets takes two or more players split over two teams. A single game takes uh, 15 minutes to half an hour. For a look at what you get in the box, be sure to check out our Codenames Duet unboxing video from YouTube. Uh, the components here are pretty much what you'd expect, right? A uh, ton of word cards, bunch of clue key cards, agent and assassin tokens, and some clue counters. Uh, there's also a rather interesting pad of maps, which is for the mission mode that I'll be talking about later. Now, what I did find really interesting is that the uh, word cards here 
are 100% compatible with the cards from the original code names and vice versa. So if nothing else, this set does give you 400 new word cards for your copy of code names. Now, if I recall the unboxing, the dots that let you separate them back out again, if you want to, were really hard to find on the cards. They're like really tiny. Yeah, they are. But I got to say, why would you? Like once you put them together, I would just have my pack of code name words somewhere. I don't know where I'd put it. Possibly, maybe I'll combine both boxes into one at some point. I personally haven't meshed my two, but once I did, it'd just be like, no, here's my codename word set, and I would keep them together. I don't, I don't see any reason why you'd split them up once meshing them together. So, how do you play Codenames Duet? All right, well, a game of Codenames Duet starts by laying out a 5x5 five five grid of random word cards. Players form teams and sit on opposite sides of that grid. A random key card is drawn and placed between both teams so each team can only see their side. Now, the goal of this cooperative game is for teams to contact 15 agents while avoiding a band of enemy assassins. Each team knows which agents the other team can contact safely and where three of the assassins are located. Now, this is indicated on that clue card. So, in other words... Get people to pick good cards, avoid bad cards, based on a crib sheet in front of you. Yep, pretty much it. Now, each round, one of the two teams gives a clue. Uh, the basic rules are you go back and forth, but there's a variant rules where same team can keep giving clues. Now, clues for people who don't know code names are given in the form of one word and one word only, and a number. And the number represents the number of words on the table that match that clue. The other team then uses these clues to select one or more of the word cards, trying to find the ones associated with their agents while avoiding the assassins. Pretty straightforward. So I could say uh, three red, trying to get you to pick rose, lips, and tomato. Right, but hope, you know, fire trucks not also there. Although fire trucks are now yellow here in Canada, but I still think of them as red from when we grew up. Uh, now, when a correct clue is guessed, a green agent card is placed over the word, and a time token is taken. The team can then go on selecting another word if they wish. If an incorrect clue is guessed, though, the turn ends. If the incorrect clue is not an assassin, what you're going to do instead of taking a time token is you're going to put a bystander token on the card. And that's just the other side of the time tokens are two-sided. And you're going to point at the team that missed the guess. Now, if an assassin is ever selected, the game ends and it's a loss for all players. If all 15 agents are found before you run out of time tokens, then everyone wins. So not unlike games we talked about previously in this episode, Rocket Science. What's important to note here, though, is just because a card is showing us something for your team doesn't mean that it's the same thing for the other team. For example, there will be agents that work for both teams. So there's ones that are green on both sides of the cue card. And there's at least one assassin that's actually an agent for the other team. And there's going to be multiple agents that are bystanders for the other team. So just because you don't want your partner to pick a specific card doesn't mean they don't want you to pick that same card. Correct. Now, in addition to the basic rules, there is also a mission-based campaign thing that can be played. Uh, after successfully completing a basic game of nine time tokens worth nine difficulty, players take a map sheet from the pad, check off Prague, and then choose a new destination from Prague to head to based on travel lines on the map. Now, this new destination will add additional constraints to the game, either limiting the number of time tokens you get 
or making it so you can only hit a limited number of bystanders before losing the game. Now, this is represented by a two-digit code on the map. So, for example, uh, sorry, two-number code. Berlin is an 11-2. So what that means is you get 11 guesses total, but only two of them can be bystanders. If you find a third bystander during a game in Berlin, you would lose the game. So, as we've discussed, this isn't, by your definition, a campaign. True. It's just a series of challenges. So, now that we know how to play, what are your experiences with this version of Codenames? Well, first of all, I want to start out just by saying the Codename series of games are have an interesting history with us. Uh, this is due to the fact that I did not get the appeal of this series of games at first at all. When the original Codenames came out, it exploded. It, it was the hotness everywhere, including here in Windsor. It became extremely popular at local gaming events. And a weekend in Windsor didn't go by without a large table of multiple people playing Codenames. Now, most of the time I let them have their fun and I was busy teaching other games because that's what I tend to do at local events is teach games. But one night I happened to have nothing to teach. So I joined into a game of Codenames and I admit I had a lousy time. Like I played two rounds, once as a clue giver and once as a guesser. I played guesser first. And during those games, I think the largest clue given all night was a three. Now, I don't remember exactly any of the words, but almost every clue switching team to team was something one. Firehouse one, uh, whatever, red one, uh, dolphin two, were like the boast, right? And the teams just easily guessed the answers. They were just blatantly obvious. Every game was on an almost high until both teams were down to like one agent left. And then someone would try like a one or two word clue hoping to catch up. Or the player team that went first won. Like, that was it. And I gotta say, playing the game like that, I didn't get it. It was not fun at all. Well, understandable. It seems like this was more of a way for people to get together and play with friends than what some might call gaming. Uh, now, there's nothing wrong with social experiences, but if you're looking for a game and, and get you know something with some meat on it, you're going to be disappointed. See, I, I pretty much avoided codenames till that point now eventually i gave it another try and i gotta say a shout out and i'm terrible for not remembering who it was but one of our viewers of, of the podcast someone on twitter actually sent us a copy of code names because they were like you're playing wrong you didn't play it right you don't get it and i broke it out 2018 our gaming in the new year party one sean was there for that finally the game clicked in the exact moment when i gave out the clue spider-man 2 trying to get my team of spies to guess change and webs while totally missing that octopus was out there and octopus was an assassin and sure enough uh web and octopus are a little closer tied to spider-man than change and we lost that game but at that moment i realized the key to code names and then it's all about not only connecting the largest number of words you can and using the biggest clue you can, but also making sure those words aren't also connected to the assassin. And it was that realization that made me finally fall in love with Codenames and realize the two teams that I was playing with the first time just didn't get it. And if they had, maybe I would have discovered Codenames long before this. Now, this was the first time I'd ever had a chance to play Codenames. So I got lucky in that having a good experience with gamers. So even though it was a party and it was a social experience, it was a party game at a party uh, with gamers, right? It was people who weren't into that more relaxed experience or who knew how to get their game on 
you know, dig into the meat yeah. while still having a relaxed experience. But that's the original code names. What about this version, Codenames Duet? All right. So when I first got Codenames Duet, the first thing, and this is everyone, I, I bet, feels the same way. And this is something I'm trying to stress in this review so people realize that is this is not a two player only game. Like, I didn't even notice that the side of the box said two or more players. I had no clue that this version of Codenames was a co op team game meant to handle two or more players. And I got to say, that was a pleasant surprise. Well, the term duet is loaded. Uh, so I would bet most people don't even look at the box once they hear the name because it sounds like it's a two-player game. It definitely does. Now, an even more pleasant surprise was just how well it works as a cooperative game and how much fun my wife and I had playing it with only two players. Now, this is my wife, Deanna, who's in the chat, and she games, who up until very recently would have sworn she hates all cooperative games. It does seem like lately we've disproved that a few times, with uh, Fox in the Forest duet being another example, and who, unlike me, never actually fell in love with the original code names. Like, I can get her to play it, but she's only actually doing it to be social and play with the rest of the group. Now, the more my wife and I played... Codenames Duet, the more we found we were getting in sync with each other and the more enjoyable the game got, the more we could pull out those big clues. And being in sync with the other players is actually a huge part of the Codenames experience. And another thing that made that game at New Year's better than the game with strangers downtown. And that's the fact that the enjoyment of the game can be player dependent. Playing with someone you've known for a long time is going to open up more clue options because you have more shared experiences and inside jokes and things in common. And this does seem to be a bit of a theme lately with a lot of the games you're seeing with the mind medium. Uh, we're looking at a, a shift in some portions of the industry into a more personal, almost intimate game uh, between two people or two groups of people bonding. Yes, I, I totally agree with that. Now, one thing I do have to note, though, is the randomness of the cards can quite a bit affect how much fun an individual play of Codenames Duet can be. Like Sometimes it just feels like you're looking at 25 cards that have nothing in common, and all the ones you need your opponent to guess are completely unrelated, and that can actually be frustrating. And that's just not nearly as fun as a game where you've pieced together that five or six word clue. Yeah, so what uh, what's going to be interesting, though, is that every group will likely have entirely different words that do or don't work this way. And that's where that 400-word deck size yeah. is really great to see. So having enjoyed a number of two-player games of code names, uh, we did try out the team rules uh, with our extended family, and those went over excellent. Like, the game night we broke this out of, that was the highlight of the afternoon. It happened to be Canada Day. One of the highlights of our Canada Day was playing Codenames Duet. With three people per team, we got to take turns giving clues and help each other out, guessing, and, and that. But what I can't see, and I gotta admit, due to the pandemic, I have not been able to test this theory, is I have a feeling that with more than six players, though, you may want to break out the original Codenames with the team-based game with the two teams guessing at once. It's just going to be too many, uh, to me, too many cooks in the pot trying to figure out your clues for this cooperative version. Yeah, co-op games of large group sizes do seem problematic, though it might be interesting to try once and see what, say, a 10 or 12 player game of Duet was like. Uh, in the future, when we can get bigger groups together, we will sure give it a try. And to be honest, I'll edit the review. I'll go in and we'll let you know on the podcast what we thought. Now, in a 
sense of completeness. I also wanted to try out the mission system. Uh, I gotta say, neither Deanna or I expected it to have much of an impact on the game. We're like, eh, we're gonna check off a map and play codenames. We're already playing codenames. Why do we need a map? But it did make a difference, actually. Because when you have a lot of clues, the game's just looser. It's 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 less stressful. You have you can take your time. You can do one and two word clues and still manage to win. But when you're limited to less than the usual number of clues, less than nine in particular, you have no choice but to shoot for the moon with a big four or five or six word clue in order to win. Like you physically cannot possibly win with only two word clues. These limitations actually force you to change your play style. And I found they added a, a nice level of tension to the game. And both my wife and I enjoyed that. Like it added a level of stress in an enjoyable way. Right. It was a way to make you really narrow your focus, even though otherwise you'd be able to be a bit lazy and still get the job done. Uh, sort of the training system to actually get you better at the game. Yes. I suspect that people who play a lot of Codenames Duet uh, are going to be better at being able to find those those big words for uh, for, yeah. for other games. Yeah. And I got to say, after trying that, I think our regular play, you know, a couple weeks later, we broke it out and we just played with the normal nine clues. We were doing a lot better because actually the game comes with 11 clues and they're in a different color. And it's like, if you need, if you beat it nine, you succeeded. If you beat it 11, you did pretty good, but try again. And we never needed those blue clues. And in, in our last probably three plays, we haven't even touched them because we have gotten better at the game. Now, part of that, again, is the connection, right? We're getting better at playing the game with each other as well as getting better with the game, which is a big part of this game. Now, I do have one a complaint, and to me it's a big complaint. Like, this one bugs me, and that is the fact the word cards are easier to read from one side. Why? This makes no sense to me when you know the, the rules of the game are put them between one team and the other. Half the people playing are going to be looking at the side that's harder to read. Now, I get they're probably trying to match the look of code names, where... When you're playing code names, yes, all the guessers are facing the same side. But even in code names, like the the people given the clues are looking at the other side of the cards. Like I don't get it. Like why 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 are you making it hard to read? The same complaint I had with medium. Why is one side of the card? Why not make the words as big as possible? Yeah, this is one of those instances where a decision was made early in the code names product life or development life cycle that they are stuck with for compatibility. Uh, they have so many word sets that changing them would just stick out like a sore thumb. I, I personally wouldn't care. Although I'd worry someone will give a clue based on the clarity of the words. But I'm like, I wouldn't mind if my Codenames duet cards didn't match my Codename cards and I meshed them up. I did. I wouldn't care. But you know what? Some people would. People like the aesthetic. And I like. I get it. They look like a name badge and there's a spot to put the token. No, just make the words as big as possible. Anyone designing a word game where I have to look down at a table and read the words, just make them as clear and readable as possible, please. From all the directions you need them to be readable in. Yes. Yes. Now, in the end... Um, I would go so far as to say that I enjoy Codenames Duet more than Codenames. Duet feels more focused. Uh, it's definitely more intense than the original. And I find a greater sense of satisfaction when winning a game of Duet over being the winning team in Codenames. I think it's pretty obvious. I recommend this one. I recommend Codenames Duet. Uh, if you're a fan of the original, just buy it. Like, seriously, if you have Codenames and have fun playing it, buy Duet. If nothing else, you're getting 400 more words and a great new way to play. Now, if you haven't played Codenames, 
I think this is a better entry point to the series. For one, it only needs two players, so it should be able to hit the table more often. Plus, if you do have big groups, you can play with teams. This is not a two-player game. Uh, as always, if you don't enjoy word games, party games, you may want to give this a try, but I would suggest try before you buy. Whereas, if you dig word games, I, you're probably not going to be disappointed with this one. Well, for a more in-depth look at Codenames Duet, you can head over to TabletopBellhop.com and click on Reviews. And now a look at Lost Cities Rivals, a two-to-four player version of the classic two-player card game, Lost Cities. Cosmos was cool enough to send us a review copy of this game. No other compensation was provided. All right, Lost Cities Rivals was designed by Rainier Nitzia, one of the most well-known and respected names in the gaming <laughs> industry whatsoever uh features artwork from sebastian cavio now here in north america it's put out by thames and cosmos uh lost cities rivals plays two to four players and a game takes about 45 minutes or less for a look at the cards and tokens you get with lost city rivals check out our unboxing video on youtube now, in addition to the expected cards, this game does come with a number of gold coin tokens. Uh, they're about the quality you'd expect from any good hobby board game. Now, the cards themselves were decent quality, but not great. This is a game where you're going to do a lot of shuffling, a lot of handling of the cards. Uh, this is one of those games where I can see if you sleeve cards, you're going to want to sleeve this. If you are a card sleever, just do it right from the start. Uh, if you're not a card sleever, you still might want to consider it. So how about an overview of how you play Lost City Rivals and how it differs, differs from the original Lost Cities? Yes. So in this case, I am definitely going to be comparing the two. I, to me, you can't help it. It is meant to be a multiple, multiplayer version of Lost Cities. It says Lost Cities right in the box. So while I will mention if I think the game stands out on its own, I, I think you have to compare these games. Now, the theme is identical. Uh, you are explorers going on expeditions, and these expeditions are represented by sets of cards in one of five colors, and each color represents a different terrain type. Wagers can be made before starting an expedition to increase the score of that expedition. Now, physically, an expedition is represented by a set of numbered cards in ascending order, potentially starting with a number of wagers. Now, interestingly, I hadn't played Lost Cities at all before I played this. And to me, the name Rivals, based on a lot of the other game uh, evolutions, sounded like the two-player variant of the game. It's like, you know, you, you go to Seven Wonders, you go to Seven Wonders Duel, you know. But it is, in fact, the other way around. It's yeah. actually gone from a two-player game to a multiplayer game. I think the game industry in general, with both of our reviews tonight, you have a game called Duet that's actually a team-based game with two teams. And now you have a game called Rivals, which is up to four players. They Players need to decide. We'll just start calling it the two-player version, and then it'd be totally clear, though it won't sound as good. So unlike Lost Cities, in Lost City Rivals, you this is not a card game where you have a hand of cards. Instead, cards are auctioned from a central play area and then purchased to be put into a player's individual tableau. Now, at the start of a game of Lost Cities Rivals, each player is randomly assigned two starting wager cards of different colors. The rest of the cards are shuffled, split into four equal-sized decks. You pick one of those decks to start the game with. The gold coins are then split evenly among the players with any remainder left as a bank. Starting with the first player, determined randomly, each player has two options on their turn. Either flip over the top card of the deck and place it next to the deck, building a, slowly building a tableau as time goes on, or start an auction for those cards that are on display. Now, during an auction, the active player bids one or more of their gold coins for the cards in the main tableau. 
The next player can then up or pass. This continues around the table. Once you pass, you're out. Eventually, you're going to have just one bidder because everyone's passed. They pay their coins to the bank. Now, the auction winner can take any number of the cards from the central playing area and keep them for themselves in their own tableau. They can lose some behind. They also can choose one card to remove from the game. Any remaining cards in the tableau just stay up for the next auction. Now, placing cards into your tableau does have a bunch of rules around it. There are some restrictions. So each color or suit of card goes in its own row, and you can only have one row for each type out of the five. Wager cards can only be played on other wager cards or used to start a new row. And once a number card has been played, all future number cards played on that row must be a higher number than the last one played. Note, the placement rules here are identical to the original Lost City. So if you know the original game, the card placement rules are the same. So, yeah, mechanics are certainly simple enough. Auction, places in the original game, rinse and repeat. Pretty much it. Now, after an auction, the player to the left of the winning bidder becomes the next start player and continues the game. Again, they're either going to flip a card or start a new auction. When the active deck runs out, everyone gets money again, and this is really well done. All the gold coins in the bank are just evenly split between all the players. So everyone is constantly getting a refresh of money, which I thought was really well done. Uh, Any... Leftover money, it stays in the bank if it's not divided evenly. When the last card of the last deck is flipped face up, the game ends immediately. So those last cards that are still up don't get auctioned, which is important when trying to count cards. So the strength of the game lays in its simplicity, but then I suspect fans of the original would expect nothing less. Yeah. Now, scoring is definitely simpler. So this is this is taking things to an easy level, to be honest, as far as I'm concerned, because It's based on the number of footprint symbols shown on the cards in each player's tableau. Whereas Lost Cities, it's based on the card value. So there's a lot more math there. Now, similar to Lost Cities, wager cards are still multipliers. One wager is going to double your points, two triples your points, three quadruples your points. Uh, Then you also get bonus points if you manage to make a set consisting of at least four number cards. No, not wagers. They don't count. Now, unlike Lost Cities, there's no penalty applied for starting an expedition. In the original game, if you start building a set of cards, you want to get that up there because you're going to start with negative points. That is not in this game, which is a little weird because they still call them wager cards, except that you're not really wagering anything. They could just be called point multiplier cards. I'm guessing they just kept the name because they were called wager cards in the original. So we all know uh, how to play. What did you think of the game? Well, to start off, I feel I have to say that I am a huge fan of the original Lost Cities. I would go so far as say a fanboy here. Um, now, it's not even just called Lost Cities because it's now Lost Cities, the original card game. And that's so it doesn't get confused with this Lost Cities Rivals or the Lost Cities board game. So there are a bunch of different ones out there. And others might know the Celtis games, which is another Nitsia game that is similar almost a retheme but not quite there's a, a couple of different mechanics uh, i know i actually finally got to learn both Celtis and lost cities through the happy meeple website when we were exploring some of the online board games out there and they have both of those available on happy meeple and so that's where i finally got my first taste of the original lost cities Now, my first taste of the original Lost Cities actually comes from one of our local downtown coffee shops. Uh, 
The Coffee Exchange, uh, owned by Ron Bala, who we've actually mentioned on the show a few times. Big gamer. He's always had a number of board games on hand in his coffee shop for customers to play. One of those was Lost Cities. And one afternoon, sitting having a coffee on Deanna's lunch break, uh, when she worked at the library, we read the rules and taught us how to play. And we were instantly hooked. And to this day, I still think Lost Cities is one of the best two-player board games out there, period. Again, I'd never played it when I sat down to play Rivals, so I wasn't coming in with any preconceptions at all about this game when I played it. Now, looking at Rivals. So, first off, it's a much lighter game. There are fewer decision points, fewer things to remember. Uh, the lower number cards, there's two of each, so trying to form card sets is actually easier. Uh, Rivals is also more forgiving. There's no penalty for starting an expedition that basically goes nowhere, whereas in the original game, you start with negative 20 points by just starting an expedition. Now, what this means without that penalty is there's no reason not to draft cards of every color. You also never have to worry about giving an opponent a vital card, whereas in the original game, Anything you discard, your opponent can pick up. Well, there's no discarding now. You're just buying from a tableau. Rivals is easier to teach. It's quicker to master. But I gotta say, being quicker and easier doesn't necessarily mean it's more fun. I gotta say, the first couple times we played this, this game fell flat. Uh, we first tried it out. I tried it out two-player at one of our easy mode game nights here in Windsor, and I really didn't enjoy it. Like, I don't think I've found an auction-based game that works with two players. Like, auction games just shouldn't be two-player games. Now, I'll admit, I gave it a couple more tries after that, and no, I, this shouldn't say two players on the box. Last City's Rivals is not a two-player game. This should say it is a three- to four-player game right on the box. Plus, if you want to play Lost Cities with two people, play Lost Cities. Don't play Rivals. It's a great game. Just go get Lost Cities. Now, as for playing with more players, I have had surprisingly mixed results. The first few games, again, at public play events, didn't go over well. Uh, one local gamer, a game designer, did think the auction mechanic was cool and the way money refreshed partway through was rather brilliant, and I totally agree with him, but found the rest of the game just boring. Now, personally, I thought it did some neat things, but I didn't find it as fun as the original. Now, a couple of other players did not enjoy the experience at all and weren't even interested in giving the game a second try after learning how to play, and Sean was one of those. So yeah, I played this uh, with four at easy mode, and I think falling flat is a bit polite in my for, for me. Uh, I think it was pretty horrible. Now honestly, I almost didn't try Lost Cities when I found it on Happy Meeple because I was dreading the experience I had playing Lost City Rivals. There you go, dreading the experience. So not a good first experience with this game whatsoever. Now fast forward to last weekend. I am playing this game with a totally different group of people. Not totally different. I guess half of us were the same. No, Deanna didn't play in that game the one time. So I was the same three other players with a, with a different group of players. And I had a completely different experience. Here I was playing with Deanna, my sister-in-law, Holly, who also used to meet Deanna downtown and play Lost Cities with her at the coffee exchange. And then Deanna's mother, who learned the original game from Holly and also enjoys it. Both of them like Lost Cities. The original... And like Lost City Rivals, a lot, actually. And I found that their enjoyment of the game spread to myself and Deanna. Like, we were enjoying it more. Like, I, I can't stress how shocked we were 
Like, this is one of those, like, we're looking at each other. We're playing through these rounds of Lost Cities Rivals with immediate family, and we're expecting to have the easy mode experience again, right? We're expecting it to flop. And here we are being engaged, counting cards, backstabbing each other, and taking part in some really cutthroat tight auctions. And, like, looking at each other, going, what just happened? Wait, was that as much fun as it like what happened so what changed right like like looking at it in retrospect why did this happen and well the main difference between these plays is the play experience of the people we played with and who we were playing with now the first group the group at easy mode had no experience with lost cities um with the 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 way you stack your cards and the wager mechanics that are really core to the game whereas the second group knew the original game really well now what this means is that the players who didn't know the original game, didn't really know the value of the various cards on display in the central tableau when bidding on the game's many auctions. So both versions of Lost Cities are also rather math-heavy games requiring card counting to play well, and that's not going to appeal to every gamer. There is a really good chance, in my opinion, I don't know if this is true, that the players in the first group probably wouldn't have enjoyed playing the original Lost Cities either, just they weren't that style of game, the Nitzia math with the theme pasted on it just wasn't interesting. Yeah. Now I don't know if I've ever actually even really talked about this on, in, on the show in the past, but I don't count cards. Um, I think I could, but I would need to put so much focus on that, that my, because my brain doesn't do it well, that yeah. it would reduce my enjoyment of the gaming experience, which is a large part of the reason why I game. Uh, so I don't, um, and then as a result, games that really require that card counting tend to fall flat with me. And really, that I think is sort of the root of why Rivals is not for me. Yeah. And that's it, right? That's that's the, the final answer. That's the solution here is Lost Cities Rivals is very much not for everyone. It's a math heavy card counting card game with a very solid auction mechanic that isn't going to appeal to all groups. Like, I personally thought it was decent those first couple plays and grew to rather enjoy it in the end, but that was based on who I was playing with. Playing with players who are taking the time to count the cards and being careful with their bidding and knowing how to value what's up there based on what they have as well as what the opponents have made the game a lot more enjoyable than playing it with people who are just playing a game and kind of playing randomly in a way. So while I enjoy both Lost Cities and Celtus, Rivals for me is a pass. And I suspect this sort of reaction is really what's keeping it well down in the rankings compared to its original version. Now, despite rowing to enjoy the game, uh, I probably will keep it in my collection. I do strongly think that the original is the better game. Uh, the only advantage Rivals has to me over Lost Cities is the fact it plays three or four players. Whereas Lost Cities, you're stuck with two, no matter what. And I got to say, like, honestly, if I had four people and two copies of Lost Cities and a copy of Rivals, I'm probably more likely to play two different games of Lost Cities, unless the group really wants to all play a game together. Um, if you enjoy the little original Lost Cities and you're like, man, we always have groups of three or four and you never get your game copy played because you always have big groups and not two, you might want to check out Rivals. Uh, I do have to say, if you've never played a Lost Cities game before, this could be a good introduction because it is lighter and it is more forgiving and it is a little easier. Uh, if you're looking for a new two-player game, don't grab this, honestly. Like, just go buy Lost Cities or something else completely. But in all cases, like, I, I 
say this often, but this is definitely a try before you buy. There, I This is not a game I can recommend for every group out there. This game does not have universal appeal. It's only going to appeal to certain people. People who like Nizia's games are probably going to like this. If they like their math-style ga- games, if you like your, your pasted-on-math game, pasted-on-theme, your theme pasted-on-math, you'll probably dig this game. Even if you like other kinds of games, you might like this one. But yeah, try before you buy here. Uh, hate saying that sometimes, but this is definitely one that not everyone is going to enjoy. And I'm not sure if you can find Rivals anywhere, but the original Lost Cities, again, you can find on the Happy Meeple website uh, to give it a try there for free. Now, there is an app race version of that as well, which the Happy Meeple, I think, is just a port of the app. It seems identical. Well, for a more in-depth look at Lost City Rivals, you can head over to TabletopBellhop.com and click on Reviews. Now the Bellhop's Tabletop, where we look back and summarize what's happened since we were last year. What games hit our tables? Every week, we like to take a look back at the games we played, any events we attended, and other cool gaming stuff that's going on. So this past week, um, I've been really enjoying the ability to play with some of our extended family. It's been nice to play with, uh, not that I mind playing games with Deanna, but being able to play some higher player count games. So last Sunday, we had a board game filled afternoon where Deanna's mom and sister came over and we played a few rounds of games. Yeah, anything we can do to get uh, a little more gaming in or a little more variety in our gaming content these days is certainly going a long way. Yeah, it's nice to be able to not just talk about two-player games or games with my kids. So up first, I broke out Lost City's Rivals. Now, as I just mentioned in the game room segment, Holly's actually the person in the family who owns a copy of the original Lost Cities, uh, bought after many games played downtown at the coffee exchange. Uh, Over the years, she's taught Brenda the game, and they both enjoy it to this day. Now, it was their mutual love of the original that made me really want to try it with them, because my initial plays of Rivals with players who didn't know it didn't go well at all. Now, again, as I mentioned in the review, these games of Lost Cities Rivals went over extremely well, and so much better than our previous experience. Like, it was almost like we were playing a different game. Like, at the end of the first round, Deanna and I sat there stumped. We're like, what's going on? How did this flop so bad? Like, I don't think we played extreme at easy mode, but you know what? It's possible. I'm not sure what rule we could have missed up, though. It was long enough ago. I don't know. Maybe we messed something up. I don't think so. Um, I looked at pictures from Easy Mode and throwing them on when I was doing the review earlier today, and it's not like I saw any cards in the wrong spot or anything obviously wrong. In the end, uh, we decided it must be the players, right? Like, some people are going to dig this game more than others, and the game overall is more enjoyable playing it with people who know how to play. Um, Knowing the value of a specific set of cards in the tableau and how valuable that is to you versus someone else. Like I could use that six, but Holly could use that six and that seven. So I know I can bid up Holly. And am I doing that to bid her up to use up her money? Like that style level of play is what made the game good. And that is what makes or breaks it. Not everyone is going to want to deep dive to that level where you're playing what looks like a light party card game. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely a niche game. Um, and interesting, I think the BGG uh, ratings tend to to view that. I mean, it's not a poorly rated game, but it's definitely far down in the pack from Lost Cities, which is uh, like top 300 game. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Now, the other game I broke out on this extended family gaming event was Bastille from Queen Games. Now, it's been a long time since this one hit the table. This is something I brought back from Origins last year, and... The reason is this took takes at least three players, right? So I finally got a chance to play it having four. So right off the bat, 
I don't remember if I talked about this last time we talked about it, but I got to compliment Queen Games on the design and layout of Bestial. The large board, uh, the scale positioning and simplicity of the icons, and the the design of this game. Not the mechanics. I'm not saying the mechanics are bad, but like the, the, the layout design, the physical design of this game makes it a joy to teach and great to play. Like, I love a board game where I can, like, lean back in my chair and see what everyone has at a glance without having to ask things like, oh, how many crowns do you have? Or things like the end game scoring and the mid game scoring rounds are right there printed on the board, nice and big and in clear view of everyone to be able to see. Yeah, it's interesting. We had a discussion uh, back and forth on our, our on our system about Bastille because we were looking to, to make sure we had the, yes. the right link to game. And I had no memory of this game. Uh, I have edited and uploaded the unboxing of this game, and apparently it made zero impact on my brain. Uh, I swore up and down that we had not. We had not done it until I, I found it in our YouTube list, and I absolutely had edited this game. Uh, I even went on to BGG and looked at, at gameplay pictures and drew a complete blank. To my brain, I had never seen this game before. Looked interesting. I like the little meep. Yep. I like the meeple. Yep. <laughs> now, no, Sean hasn't played it. It's not like he played yeah. it and completely <laughs> forgot about it. Oh, no. This is just editing yeah, the yeah. video. I don't, I don't, I'm, Sean's not trying to say this is a completely forgettable game. Oh no, absolutely not. It, it's just somehow in our in in the the editing and 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 yep. looking at the game. And we talk about these games when we when we're doing some of the things. And I'm usually in the in the chat room for a lot of the unboxings. Uh, I I just forgot about having seen the game. Never played it. Yep. So. It was in the wrong category on YouTube, which is why I couldn't find it. So we fix that now. So this particular play of Bastille with two players who had never even seen the game before uh, went way better than all previous games of Bastille. And that is because I've learned during previous games how important the citizen deck is and how much it impacts play. In previous games, there was always a few key details that players seemed to miss, including me on the first play. And all of them are in regards to the citizen deck. Now, some of it's based on the game and scoring cards, but also how many of each citizen there are and what numbers they come out and when they come out during the game. I'm not going to get into the details of it here. But the important thing is, having figured all this out beforehand, I front-loaded all of this information during the teach of the game. And thankfully, it's an easy enough teach that I can throw in this additional info to kind of explain why you might want to do a thing and what to watch for. And that made a huge difference. It's in everyone's enjoyment of the game. Yeah, as we, we've talked about, you know, we've done teaching episodes a number of times. We talk about it all the time, and, and anything that can that can get you that first game to be more enjoyable mm -hmm. uh, is going to benefit everyone uh, for both the first game and moving on because it in, it improves your experience of the game, which is just going to allow you to look more favorably on playing it again. Yeah, because this is one of those games that completely flew under the radar. Now, I didn't look it up to see which it was, but some other popular games came out at the same time of this, and people just missed Bastille. And that's what I was told by Queen Games at Origins, that the reason Bastille, in their opinion, failed was it came out when there was some, some big, huge hype games that came out at the same time. Now, that may be part of it. I totally agree that that could be one of the reasons, but I think a potentially bigger reason that we may have missed is how much uh, this organization of the Citizen deck affects play because it's split into three sections, A, B, C, and what comes out when. And I don't think anyone is going to grok how important that is on their first play. 
Now, what this means is that in today's one-and-done board game culture, that first play at Bastille is probably going to be good. Like, it's a solid game. You're going to see some neat mechanics. You're going to enjoy those mechanics, but it's probably not going to be great because you're going to miss these details that are important to playing the game well. I honestly think it takes a second play, or like in this case, being taught by someone who has played a few times, that can point out these idiosyncrasies to make this game really shine. Because I think with this game, people tried it, right? It was out there. People bought it. People taught it at home. They played it, and it was okay. Like, they, they're like, oh, if I had realized this, I probably would have played better. But then moved on and never talked about the game, right? You didn't hear much about it. Whereas once you actually figure out how everything works and interacts, I think there's a very good game here. Like, a step above just a good game. I think this is a game definitely worth checking out. Well, and it's... it's it's very important, I think, and one of the reasons why when we do a review and when, when, when Mo's gone through and done a review, we are not actually doing a official review without about five game, uh, plays for most games, sometimes more, uh, sometimes are really basic games like we talked about Supercats last week. There's not that much to it. You don't, you know, you can, you can play it on a few different player counts to see if there's a difference, but there aren't really mechanics other than Rochambeau to, to yeah. analyze there. So you might be able to get away with that a little uh, quicker, but really if you aren't playing a game at least five times, you're not understanding everything that it has to bring to the table. Mm. Which, actually, as for my final thoughts, for that reason specifically, I'm not, this isn't my be-all, end-all. I'm going to try to get in one, at least one more, maybe two more games before I write up the review. Uh, Just because I want to try it with three, for one. Um, I think I played it in the past with three. Like I said, I've owned this one for more than a year. And I want to play it at least once more with four. But I do hope to have that ready for next week's episode. So you'll get my final thoughts on Bastille a week from today. Well, how about a look ahead? What do you have planned for the coming week? Obviously, a couple games of Bastille. <laughs> Again, aiming for three players uh, for next week's review. Uh, we are planning to get together with Deanna's mom. Uh, we want to check this out, this escape mail envelope. Deanna's the one that pointed out, I, we were going to do it, the two of us. She pointed out that her mom is a huge puzzle fan. Like, she does Sudokus for fun. She likes logic puzzles. She's a huge puzzle buff. So we're going to try it out with her. So a, I wouldn't say it. her mom's not a non-gamer, but she's not a, a hardcore heavy gamer. She plays games and enjoys games. But she is a hardcore puzzle fan. So I think getting the experience of a puzzle fan in this escape room in an envelope will be worth it. So we're going to try that. Um, and Katana, we're getting ready for the review on that, playing Katana with the full rules. And I want to hammer off a Jaws review in the next couple of weeks. So I am looking forward to getting that back to the table. Now that, again, that is a game that requires at least three people. So we're going to have three people we can play that a little bit more. And I, and I definitely recommend with your next play of Jaws, don't play the, the shark. You know, you've done that. Yeah, I got it. Get that other side of the table book. experience. Um, because, again, that's that's the only reason why I would play it again is to try that other side of the game table. Now, a quick shout out and a thank you to some of our VIP guests, our Patreon backers. We greatly appreciate their support. Jeff Seuss. Thank you, Jeff. P.S. Goujon. Thanks. William Fisher, thank you. Danielle Thomas, thanks, Danielle, though we just missed you in the chat. Yeah, she ran away. Sean P. Kelly, congrats. 300 episodes of the Gaming and BS podcast, uh, which I still think is one of the best RPG 
advice shows out there. Listen to Brett and Sean. Uh, you can catch them live Monday nights on Twitch now. And I honestly have no idea what day of the week their podcast comes out because I subscribe and it just shows up. I, we're checking out. I only ever watch them live. And he also does, and they also do a live play on Thursdays. Actual plays on Thursdays. There you go. Well, that was the double bell. That means my shift's coming to an end and we're going to have to lock the front doors. Though the doors to the lobby are closed and the portcullis is down, you can always find us across the web and social media as Tabletop Bellhop, one word, or drop by our website at tabletopbellhop.com for more gaming content. I feel like the content we're providing and would like to support our continued efforts. Please consider tipping your bellhop through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash tabletopbellhop. Remember to join us here on Twitch every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern and watch for the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast to hit your podcatchers and YouTube at 2 a.m. Eastern every Tuesday. Well, that about wraps up the time we have for the show tonight. For those of you here live, thank you for joining us. And be sure to stick around and join us in the penthouse suite for the after show. For Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I'm Sean. And I'm Mo. Thank you. And game on. Graphic design by Brian Weiss at RPG & Co. Music is Nimbus by Eveningland. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution license.